If you think about the value that students get out of that, I think that's what's important to take away from it, right? Like they're getting information from real world practitioners of really cool companies that are thinking differently and being innovative. That's going to stick with those students. That is valuable for them. Welcome to Attention Retention, a special podcast series on how to attract, enroll, retain, and empower the modern learner. Brought to you in partnership with our friends at Archer Education. Over the course of this series, we will cover higher ed's product problem and discuss how to fix it, the challenges with major and program relevance in today's dynamic market, how to successfully attract, enroll, and retain adult learners, and how to compete in a market when your school doesn't have a national brand. This series is co-hosted with Angie Moore, the Senior Vice President of Student Engagement, and Clayton Dean, the Senior Vice President of Agency and Partnership Management at Archer. And also with yours truly, Zach Buzicruz here from Enrollify. Attention Retention is comprised of six episodes, but the content doesn't need to be consumed sequentially. That said, if you want to listen in chronological order, be sure to scroll on down to the show notes where you'll find every episode listed and linked. Getting attention is hard enough, so once you have it, you've got to do everything that you can to harness it. And that's what our friends at Archer Education help schools do so dang well. Well, you'll get a taste of some of their ideas on how to optimize marketing and recruitment strategies over the course of the series in order to really learn more about how Archer revolutionizes the student experience through marketing, enrollment, and retention services, you'll want to check out the content hub that they built exclusively for Enrollify subscribers. You can find this content hub at archeredu.com forward slash Enrollify. Again, that's archeredu.com forward slash Enrollify. All right, without further ado... Welcome to Attention Retention. Angie Clayton, welcome. That could actually be a cool name, Angie Clayton. It sounds like <laughs> the name of like a movie star. I like that you started with me first, so I like it. I'm in. Uh, well, welcome back, folks, to another episode of a special collaboration between Archer Education and Enrollify. So we're going to do a lot of fun things over the course of this series. And the way that, you know, as, as we were all brainstorming, what do we want to talk about? How do we want to use this time? I feel like where we sort of all arrived was we want this to be sort of a helpful, collaborative brainstorm on what the future of higher education might look like. And our, our hope for those tuning in is that you get, you know, a fair number of strategies, tactics, good takeaways, but ultimately that you have fun listening to this conversation and that there's at least a nugget or two that you can kind of walk away with and implement in your own context. And so I thought to kind of kick us off, it'd be fun to have a conversation about how we all get into sort of like the creative zone, right? So like when you got to tackle some big project, whether it's fleshing out a, you know, business plan for the year or thinking through a campaign for a client that's creative focused, how do each of you sort of like get in the zone? Uh, so Angie, let's start with you and then, and then Clayton will go to you. Yeah, no, I like how you just jump in. There's no warm up questions, but just like <laughs> how to be creative, right? No, I think before I answer that question directly, something that, uh, you know, I think it's just important to share or whatever is my background's in marketing. So I got business marketing degree. Um, 
I've worked at higher ed marketing agencies, a few of them. Um, and earlier in my career, you know, I've never considered myself to be like a creative. We had a creative department and I would get kind of intimidated when it was time to do like creative exercises because again, like my background's marketing and channels and the four P's. And so it's really intimidating, I think, to think about like, you gotta get, you gotta be creative. So I think it's important to understand too that like, don't psych yourself out about what it means to be creative because ultimately, it's about problem solving, right? Like identifying the problems that need to be solved is actually a creative process in and of itself uh, before you just jump in and try to start like coming up with wild, crazy, wacky ideas or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, it was a big hurdle for me to get over in my professional career of just thinking about that or not just getting out of my head. But in terms of like when I need to sit down and actually think through problems and how to solve them, I think the easiest thing for me to do is similar to like, you're gonna go work out or do yoga or whatever it's just like take a deep breath clear your head get into a different space like get away from your desk get away from your computer sit down like I like to have actually like pen and paper and just start by identifying like what am I actually trying to solve and sometimes really like if you can just get to the heart of that that like I said can be a creative exercise in and of itself and that can be enough for like one sitting or setting you know um, and then coming back to it and, and slowly chipping away at it so yeah, I think it's just that first and foremost, don't psych yourself out when you're trying to get creative and solve problems. Just, just get to the heart of what the problem is first. I like what you said about like changing your environment too. I feel like that's super, super helpful. For sure. Even even if it's like you're moving from, you know, one part of your room to the next part of your room, just the act of like literally physically changing where you are does something psychologically to you. Right. And I've been working for, I think we all probably have been working from home for the past two and a half years. So changing your scenery is sometimes hard to do, but super important. So I go to a coffee shop probably twice a week for that purpose, just mm. to, like to get out of my home office, which I'm lucky to have a space to work in, but to get out of that space and be in like, I think the white noise and the hustle and bustle, it, it it's like working on an airplane too. I can get so much done, you know? But one thing that was interesting for me as you were talking, like you had a way more in-depth answer than I was going to go. <laughs> I was be like, uh, like I eat breakfast, I work out. Blah, blah. But I think what changed for me a couple of years ago, I, I took a, a design thinking course and understanding the problem you need to solve first and like putting my ener creative energy and just to getting that down was really a game changer for hmm. me. So as you talk about your process, that's just something that that I found really helpful and a lot of what we do at Archer kind of frames a lot of the work we do around that identifying the problem, the success statement and getting our teams to rally around those. But for me personally, I use the same kind of thinking to solve a problem or, you know, figure out something on the creative side. So you mentioned the design thinking course. I think I took, uh, or at least listened to a podcast. I don't remember what it was on design thinking too. And one of the, it's a fun exercise you can do once you've identified the problem is, what would we not want to do to solve this problem? Like what are huh. the worst ideas? Ooh, and that can good. be a fun way to just get your head in that space of like, yeah. uh, a having fun, which is, uh, really important. I think to just getting, you know, your creative juices flowing. Uh, but B sometimes you can just pivot right into like a good solution from a bad solution. So, uh, I, that one stuck with me as like a fun and powerful exercise as kind of silly as it might sound. I like that a lot. So one of the things that, I have started doing, which is somewhat silly, but actually like surprisingly helpful. It's super, super simple. The very first, if I'm trying to 
solve a problem. The very first thing, the very first idea that comes to mind, I'll just like write down on a whiteboard or like a notepad or whatever. And then I'd write down another couple of ideas and then I'd draw a big box around those ideas. And then it's like, okay, these are all the things that are like inside the box. Now you have to think like outside the box. So I can't solve the problem with any of these, you know, two or three things, but it, it is, it's, it's helpful. And oftentimes they're shitty, you know, answers anyways. And so, but like, it, it's, it's helpful to, you know, have at least something on paper, something on a whiteboard before you, you know, as you kind of like work your way into the creative process. So that's just been a fun little uh, game that I like to play. Yeah. You got to find your, your thing, your game or whatever it is and just stick with it. The processes that work. So one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is really about the moment that higher ed is in right now, right? So we are experiencing competition like never before. There are, let alone, you know, all of the internal forces and competition between colleges and universities. There's a lot of external forces that are at play, uh, alternatives to traditional education that are popping up. And what I really want to talk to you both today about is the the problem or the the challenge that higher ed has with with its core product offering or core product offerings and one of the ways i'd like to kick this off is when we think about boot camps that are popping up like the general assemblies of the world even sort of like the the lambda schools of the world you know these are these are compelling alternatives to a traditional four-year degree you know for a certain kind of student at least so i'd love your all's thoughts on just where we're at in this moment in history and how would you describe the challenges that higher ed faces right now and, and also some of the opportunities and we'll, we'll start with you Clayton and then bounce over to you Angie. I mean part of me loves it just because there's so much innovation happening there's like some of the smartest most driven talented people I know or have their minds on how do we improve the traditional experience but also offer new and alternative experiences that's going to open the door to people who may not, you know, be able to, to access mm. traditional education, you know? So, and part of me loves it. I know there's a lot of challenges like with a lot of our partners. I mean, it, enrollments are, you know, really hard to come by right now. And there's a, there is competition, there's doubt on outcomes. There's, you know, there's a lot that we're having to solve for with our partners. And we can talk a little bit about how we, how we do that and how we approach that. Um, but I, I think it's an exciting time. I think I think it's forcing us in traditional, you know, I say us, like we were, even though we're not on campus, we're in traditional higher ed and we've, you know, we care about it. We worked in it for a number of years. It's forcing us to evolve our thinking and uh, think outside of the box. And us at Archer, we're having to rethink how, you know, how we do the, the work that we do as well. We need to be able to help support our partners as they evolve and offer certificates and stackables and boot camps and short courses and how we can help them do that and facilitate that right historically it's been really difficult expensive to market those programs and it's not really you know hasn't been really feasible from a traditional marketing perspective you have to get creative with it um but you know i think it is you know i just think it's an exciting time i mean that's that's really where i or it kind of boils down to me to for me and i think students are gonna have more options as we look ahead um, I think there will be some consolidation, I think, in traditional ed, but I think as a whole, I, like, I believe in what we're doing in traditional education. I don't think it's going anywhere. It's just going to, we're at a point where I think we're going to evolve. And, and I think a lot of folks who maybe have been re resistant to change are going to be, are much more open to exploring new ideas, 
deploying new kind of learning modalities in order to kind of better meet the demands of the like modern student. Yeah, and it's funny um, you talk about this being an exciting moment, and I think it's you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, might think of it more as a very challenging, very sort mm-hmm. of like dark moment um, mm-hmm. in in our industry's history. But it's for for what it's worth, we were earlier this week talking to some students at, in San Francisco. And we went to a couple campuses, USF and then uh, San Francisco State. And one of the things that was so cool in talking with students is that I, I do think like students are very optimistic. Like one of the uh, one of the stories of somebody that um, that we met, she came up and she was telling us about how, you know, she wanted to go to school in the Bay Area, but it was very, very expensive. And so she knew she couldn't f- afford to come here for four uh, or, or go up there for, for four years. So she actually started off at a local state school for a couple years, uh, got her gen eds out of the way, and then decided to transfer to uh, USF in um, in San Francisco. And what was so interesting to me, at least about her story, was the fact that she, from the get-go, knew she wanted to go to USF. USF had done all this marketing, right? All this, like, uh, poured a ton of time, energy, and effort into trying to get her and students like her to campus. And she, you know, technically did not you know she she technically withdrew her withdrew her application when she decided to go to start off at a state school and um and yet she had every intention of after those two years she was transferring to usf and so it, talking with her talking with other, other students on campus i do think it, it's it's worth noting that there, there's this like positive exciting energy on campus in spite of everything that higher ed has been through over the past few years let me add one more thing I, i'm kind of cannibalizing this but i have a I, i'm reading a book right now I guess I tend to be an optimistic person about a lot, right? But I'm reading a book called Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman, which has been really interesting. And I'm drawing a lot of parallels to higher ed, right? And they talk about Moore's Law and technology and like the craziness of the world right now. And they can kind of boil it down to like things are moving so quick that we can't keep up with it, right? And I think higher ed is feeling that right now, right? Like the demands, like what students expect and the economy and the job market is moving so quick you know, I, uh, listening to your uh, podcast with the GM of Learning Brew, where she made a point of like, we're changing hundred, like how things have been done for hundreds of years. Like, how are we going to, we're not going to pivot this quickly, right? Like we, higher ed is made up with a lot of smart people that are going to figure this out. It's just going to take time and it feels crazy right now. It feels scary, but we're going to figure it out, you know? Last week, I finally finished season two of Ted Lasso. When the series had come to an end, it was only 9.45 p.m., which meant I had a solid 45 minutes before it was time to go to sleep. I don't know if there was a glitch in the recommendation algorithm or something, but there was no opportunity to keep watching Apple TV. I was engaged, I wasn't ready to go to bed, I was willing to give Apple more of my time because I wanted more lasso-like content in my life, but they led me to a dead end. So I left and started browsing Netflix instead. And while the journey to enrollment for a student is quite different from binging an Emmy award-winning TV series, all institutions and streaming services actually care about the same thing. And that thing is attention. If you work in student recruitment, you're in the market for eyeball time. You're not just competing with other institutions, you're competing with every brand that's in the market for views, clicks, and scrolls from your target audience. Getting attention is hard enough. So once you have it, You've got to do everything that you can to harness it. And that's what our friends at Archer Education help schools do so dang well. Archer is pioneering a new era in personalized student recruitment through its story-driven and technology-enabled approach that's designed to support the entire enrollment process. 
And one of the ways that Archer is doing this is through Onward, their digital experience platform. Onward is a dead-end squasher. It's a choose-your-own-adventure-style experience that replaces your static thank-you pages with an always-on system that pre-qualifies every prospect, so your admissions team can focus their efforts on those inquiries that are engaged right now. Onward is the secret in the toolbox of top-performing admissions teams. It's the attention optimizer that keeps prospects engaged and inspires them to offer more context about who they are, what they want, and when they're looking to enroll. To learn more about how to harness attention when it's hot, visit archereducation.com forward slash enrollify. Again, that's archereducation.com forward slash enrollify. Oh, and if you're struggling to get attention from prospects, the Archer team has a plethora of digital advertising solutions in their arsenal that'll help you reach the precise students that you're looking for. And if you haven't discovered it already, Enrollify and Archer have partnered on a brand new podcast series called Attention Retention. Learn more about attention retention wherever you get your podcasts or at podcast.enrollify.org. Get attention, keep attention, hit your enrollment targets. Visit archereducation.com forward slash enrollify to learn more. That's along the lines of what I was going to say and what I've been thinking is the fascinating thing to me about all of it is just how there's no one pivotal moment or there's no one thing that's created all of this change. It's so, it has to do with so many factors evolving at the same time between the workforce and the job market, the new generation of students, you know, coming into, into higher ed. So there are two things that stand out to me as like having accelerated the pace of change in higher ed uh, tremendously in the past few years. And one's super obvious, right? It's COVID. And then the other one is just this shifting Gen Z, right? Student preferences. Uh, for the first time ever, I feel like we see this convergence of uh, the traditional student, right? Like the story that you just told of, um, you know, someone graduating in high school, out of high school and, and going into their, their, you know, higher ed journey. And what we, um, a lot of the institutions we work with are um, to market to and enroll for non-traditional students, right? For continuing ed programs, grad programs, et cetera. And so this convergence of like the, the human thought and just Gen Z's preferences and the, and the way that that generation is thinking as they're you know, graduating high school and getting ready to go to college is so similar to the non-traditional student that you know those those two worlds used to be wildly different and now they're more similar than ever before and i think we can start to think about you know what is you know even as even as recently as like 2015 i think it was ncs reported that 74 percent of students were considered non-traditional and met that criteria of things like having a full-time job or having a dependent um i think the other one was an age um an age range that they fell in so like we are already kind of trending that way in terms of just like the, what's different today um, and how, you know, it's hard for higher ed as this big system to kind of keep up with the pace of change. But the last two years has have three years really have accelerated that so much that there isn't really like a quote unquote traditional path anymore. There isn't a super like you don't see that as nearly as much anymore. It's it's more rare than it is common. And so I, I think that's what's fascinating is just. Um, again, like the workforce changes, but the, the students and the people are so different in what they need and want and the value, right? Like a lot of, of students today can't afford to go down that, again, quote unquote, traditional path. So there have to be alternatives to eat, to get to feed them into it, right? So yeah, yeah. that's just, I feel like we're hearing stories like that, you know, over and over again with the um, clients and institutions that we work with too, so. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons why these alternatives to traditional education, like the boot camps of the world, are are popping up, are because you know they do a arguably at least better job at quickly equipping you with what you really need in order to start working, right? And so I think we're seeing more progressive institutions shift and and try to launch you know certificates, boot camps, even just you know make core changes to their core programming in order to help ensure that students are a little bit more ready for the workforce upon graduation. I'm curious when you guys, the, the clients that you all work with, uh, you know, people that you know throughout the industry, are there, do you have good examples of how institutions are partnering with leaders in the workforce and, and are, you know, have good feedback loops in place to ensure that we're creating a product that next generations of students not just need, but actually want as well, right? And how how are you all seeing higher ed position itself, it's, you know, traditional higher ed in particular, position itself as a viable alternative to a Lambda school, to a general assembly? Like how, especially for the student that is a little bit more focused on outcome and yep. really wanting a job, they, they could care a little bit less about the quote unquote college experience. How are you all seeing more progressive institutions tackle these challenges? I think this is where a lot of regional. I think this is where a lot of regional brands, you know, public and privates, that I think this is where they get overlooked in the value they can provide to students who, you know, being a top fifty is not their priority. They want to get a job, and I think a school like University of Missouri St. Louis that we work with, they have amazing relationships with local businesses, not only to inform the curriculum, but serve as a pipeline for, for students, for, for jobs after, after their programs. Um, and, you know, I think, I just think schools like that are, are overlooked in the value in those relationships they have on a regional basis. Right. So, um, no, and you know what I think is interesting, um, as we look at, I, I was looking at some data from career karma around the alternative pathways. Yeah. And it's really not like there was like 44,000 students last year that graduated from a boot camp, which is lower than I thought. Right. Yeah, yeah. So if you talk about how many, what is it, you know, 2 million graduates or like uh, graduates from master's programs or something like, I forget the, the exact number, but it's still a pretty small number of, you know, a, a percentage that's really taking away, I guess, if you could look at it as a comp as competition from the graduate pool. Right. Yeah. I think it's going to grow. I think I look at them working well and kind of in harmony of offering different accessibility and pathways for people. Right. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's really interesting that there's a lot more to come on that side. Um, and I think schools like the regionals are going to, are going to be, I, I see them as being a little bit more progressive and thinking more about outcomes. Mm. Um, and, um, one, one really good example I have outside of University of Missouri, St. Louis as well. Um, University of Arizona launched a mini MBA program with Dignity Health Global Ed. Um, and they kind of took a unique approach. And I want to talk a little bit, hopefully today about this, of bringing in either thought leaders and different, like they have professional sports and Olympians and business people that are coming in and helping teach a lot of these courses within this mini MBA. So I think when you talk about like I look at workforce develop like the workforce side is not only a pipeline for, you know, informing curriculum and job opportunities, but I think a lot of students coming up are gonna are want to learn from people who are walking the walk and practitioners, the yeah. practitioners. Yeah. I think we're gonna see more of that. I think and um, you know I think that's just I think to me that's really interesting and you know being able to learn about resilience business resilience from a you know an uh, Olympian and 
you know, I just think that's really neat. I think that's what the younger genera generation is going to want to gravitate to or the president, you know, the owner of a, a Bitcoin company. And like, how do you get into that world? You know, like they're going to love learning yeah, about that. Kind absolutely. Of stuff, you know, I think, you know, partnering you know, institutions have um, an opportunity to really partner with the workforce locally, regionally, you know, Amazon is funding that pilot that's going to support new computer science uh, bachelor's degree programs through community colleges in the Seattle area. And you know, what's interesting about technology and what's happening there is a lot of these employers would be willing, I, I've seen this uh, with, a, with a, a partner that we have right now, where the companies are actually paying for that education, or at least part of it, right? So if if institutions can find these partners to where that they can help lower the cost of education and have pathways into careers, I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, how higher ed can, you know, kind of compete with what's going on with this idea of boot camps, and again, just the value that students are looking for today and the real world outcomes, like what job am I um, going to get with this degree? I think um, if we can start looking for those opportunities and thinking that way, I think in addition to kind of what Clayton said about, you know, real practice, real world practitioners being able to help teach courses. Um, I think, you know, just again, just shifting kind of the mindset of how we think about where program where the programs and the content comes from um is, is just an important thing for all of us to be kind of focusing on and thinking about kind of shifting the the question right yeah yeah it's funny uh the interview you referenced clayton a few moments ago with karen from morning brew she you know was saying that they get the COO of Shopify to lead a course, right, on how to structure a business plan, right? Like how you should be thinking about, uh, you know, talent development even, right? Like they've got the, uh, a, an HR lead from Athletic Greens. And I think I think what they're doing, and, you know, their, their model is obviously a little bit different um, from a traditional institution's model, but like they're finding brands that are trendy right now or that like younger people in particular like have some affinity for or at least know and they're building like real-time case studies based off of these brands and it, you know I, I remember in school i studied marketing and you know we were reading case studies that were 20 25 years old right like hbr studies and you're like what yeah what is kodak right like um and and it, it's it's just interesting so i, I think that why these boot camps can be pretty compelling is like they're serving up something that is that looks at least very relevant and very timely. And I would argue that, you know, higher ed has a lot more to offer students than just a, you know, trendy course. But I do think that there's there's something worth noting there, right? And something worth paying attention to. Like what does it look like to involve more adjunct faculty, right, in in your core course programming like what would it look like to have a couple of flagship courses mixed into even gen eds um where you brought different leaders from you know if it's a regional if it's a regional school from your your community right like hey this is the founder of these five coffee shops that everyone from this school probably knows what is it, what does it look like for him to teach about supply chain management or whatever it is right like there's so much opportunity that i think that uh folks can learn from these boot camps and i you know while certainly there are there are challenges and friction in the way like this isn't like an impossible problem to solve. No. I mean, it sounds it sounds trendy, but at the same time, if you think about the value that students get out of that, I think that's what's important to take away from it, right? Like they're getting they're getting information from real world practitioners of really cool companies that are thinking differently and being innovative. Um, that's going to stick with 
those students. That is valuable for them. So, yeah, I think, you know, getting innovative and, and coming up with like fun and new ideas and new ways to do to do things and bringing in um, those real world real world practitioners are great but it's also like there is value in that and thinking about how can we provide more value for students is a great way to I think just start finding those types of opportunities and and thinking in that way well I think we were talking earlier about speeding up course development right and modernizing courses and updating them you know some of them probably need to be updated quarterly right (laughs) And like, we're no expert in this area, but I think that to me, that's a big area that needs to be solved just to be more agile with the curriculum side, you know, even content from five years ago is outdated. Right. And most schools don't have the resources to update it probably more than that. Right. So, um, to me, that's an area we, you know, we need to figure out. out, I would, I would imagine. Zach, we haven't talked about this. We should have an episode where we just talk about like hacks, because I think (laughs) there's ways you can hack some of this where you don't have Mm -hmm. to blow up the whole program, but like, how could you just change, you know, little pieces of it and bring in just, you know, um, change one small section of it. Um, I was reading the book recently. I think it's atomic thinking or atomic habits. Sorry. Um, and what was fascinating to me is like, I'll start reading these books on habits, right? And it seems like you have to kind of blow up your whole world and how you're doing things and start get up at 5am, take a cold shower. I'm like, I do not, I'm not going to, that's not sustainable for me. Let's be honest. So, but this, the idea in this book is like changing things like 1% at a time and over time, how much of an impact that can make. And I think that's, that's again, just kind of a fascinating way to think about anything that you're doing, right? How could I make this maybe 1% better just to, you know, tick, tick up the results just a little bit. And if you could do that, you know, every quarter, every year, think about how much better it's going to be in five years from now. So I think sometimes you can get overwhelmed thinking about having to completely change an entire system or an entire program, um, or, you know, taking a program from this type of delivery model to that, where really we could kind of make some small changes to bridge the gaps. Yeah. I remember too, in, in school, I had to take a few econ courses for our, for, uh, the marketing major that I was pursuing. And, um, you know, we took micro and macro, all the sort of fundamentals. But the I feel like where I learned more than anything about economics was in my airline economics course. And it's, they had the, actually it was the uh, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, you know, the uh, low-cost carrier. He taught the course. And it was unbelievable. It was like, it was like probably like my favorite college course I've ever had. And not to, you know, it, it wasn't just because we were talking about travel and, and airplanes, which I love, but it was like, he, he had such a way of teaching concepts through story that was so unbelievably compelling. Like he brought in somebody from Airbus. He brought in somebody from, you know, American airlines and like different, these guest speakers. And I kid you, this was a, this was a, uh, month, a Thursday night course, a Thursday night course from like seven to 10 PM once a week. Okay. It was packed like a hundred percent of the time. Like Thursday night courses, people skip those classes, right? Like this guy, like there was, there were, we'd have to stand in the background sometimes because people would bring their friends like to like sit in on this course. He was just unbelievably dynamic. But I, I only bring that up because, you know, that was one course in a series of courses that we had to take a, as part of our, you know, to fulfill our econ requirements. But that that stands out. And like, when I think about my overall college experience, like that is a course where I literally tell everybody about, um, and you know, most of my other courses were pretty traditional, but that one stands out in particular. I think that says a lot though. Right. And I mean, not to dig us too deep here, but I think there's, you know, and I know we're going to talk more about this, about the, 
you know, productizing and looking at it as a product and students as consumers. And I think there's some accountability there too on the, on the university side where I think there's more accountability being pushed toward university and expectations and a spotlight on, on outcomes and on the experience that like, when I talk about being excited, I think that's like that mindset's going to shift where schools are going to pay, have to pay a lot more attention to the, you know, introducing content courses more like that than, you know, my, uh, one of my accounting courses that, you know, it's hard to stay awake in and you really don't learn a lot. I'd much rather, you know, I probably learn more out of a book I read called simple, simple numbers. When I started my uh, company, I've learned more out of that than I did in, you know, three semesters of, of accounting. Right. So it's like, I do think we're going to have to rethink the experience. And I think right now is an exciting time. Cause I think the light bulb's starting to go off and, you know, there is some evolution happening, but there's, I think the, my blind spot is the realities of, you know, and you alluded to this earlier of all the different pieces that need to evolve in order for that. It sounds really easy on the surface, but you know, we all know there's a lot more to cut through there, but, um, (laughs) no, right, right, right. But I, you know, it's like solving those little issues, you know, I'd love to pick somebody's brain who, you know, works more to, to solve the, you know, cutting through the red tape. Yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, and, and speaking of like product, right. And thinking about the product that higher ed offers the core product, we, we tend to automatically default to sort of like majors and programs and outcomes, right? Like you are, you are selling students, you're selling prospective students on a future reality, right. Is really what you're doing. Yeah. We are right under a flight path here in uh, point Loma. So, uh, speaking of airline economics, um, I wonder if it's spirit. Um, anyhow, but thinking about sort of the, the core product of higher ed, I do think it's it's worth identifying and, and noting here that like there are a significant number of students that do come to college for the traditional college experience. Like the, the, the idea of moving out of mom and dad's house and living on campus and going to a football game, right? And, you know, you're it's really sort of this catalyst moment of like becoming an adult, right? So, it, and, you know, there's there's a lot there too, right? And so... I think when I think about when productizing higher ed, right, and and like again, this is a this is a nasty word. We don't like this word in higher ed. Like we don't like to think about uh, ourselves in this way. And yet, as you've mentioned, Clayton, I do think that there's this paradigm shift happening right now where people are more comfortable thinking about it this way. Because yes, your customers are your students and their parents, right? So I'm curious, like when you guys think about schools that are doing a really good job at sort of like breaking this up and, and maybe sort of thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we sell the experience? How do we sell, you know, majors and programs? How do we sell, you know, our exclusive community, which is our alumni network? Like, are there examples that come to mind of people that are, that are doing this well? We talk a lot about, of you know, in, in higher ed about the need to develop UVPs, unique value propositions, and, and schools kind of struggle to do that succinctly and, and, and do that well. And so when I think about product, differentiation the first thing that comes to mind for me is like okay what about your experience is different than somebody else's experience or what about your programs and majors are different from the school down the streets programs and majors or what is unique about your your alumni network right that um that is that is extra special from and, and stands out from other schools so how do you guys think schools can do a a better job at you know promoting these somewhat you know diverse offerings I think our lens is very much on the graduate side. So a lot of times we're not, we're not necessarily selling like the campus experience and whatever, you know, whatever comes along with that. So I think for, for me, and I'm sure for you, it's my, my lens is always, 
how do we how do we communicate the value of a graduate program, especially yeah. online, right? Yeah. And think about the market the last 10 years, you know, so many programs are almost identical in curriculum delivery. Like, how do you cut through that? How do you make it unique? How do you show the student? Um, so what we started doing is looking at like, okay, let's really boil down the product. The product in that environment is the faculty, in my opinion, like they are really who that is the face of the program. That's, that is the product, right? So we shifted a lot of what we do to focus on the faculty and sharing their stories and their voice and using faculty as well and working with faculty and during the, uh, you know, the nurturing process when students are evaluating different programs, you, you can leverage faculty as a way to stand out from others, right? So, you know, it's kind of this, this uh, sea of sameness. So we look at faculty, we look at even the mission of a program and a department. American University is a good example where uh, their school of education is has a very clear mission and who the types of students they want to attract right so it's up to us to tell that story to connect with those students who are going to be like you know what i i'm that kind of person that wants to go to my community and make a difference and i'm going to stand i'm going to get my hands dirty i don't want to just sit in an office i want to get my hands dirty and au's you know masters in ed that aligns much more with how i think and how i operate so for me, there's some intangibles there that, but I think it's all about how you kind of communicate that um, and kind of tell that story and help the, the student visualize that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think broad campaigns that are meant to reach a mass uh, community of people and, and tell them why your program might be different just doesn't work anymore. It really is about elevating the faculty, understanding too what types of students you really want to recruit for different types of programs so that you can speak to those prospective students more in a one-on-one -on -one kind of way, speaking to individuals, speaking about what matters to them. But also I think something else that's really important and you kind of alluded to this Clayton with the mention of like faculty is the product, but you know, stop selling programs and start talking about the outcomes and what you can get out of that education versus just, you know, this is an accounting degree or this is an MBA. Um, I think elevating uh, what graduates have done with that, with that degree, talking about the faculty and the experience that they will have, even if it is a fully online program, there is a lot to be said about an experience that you can deliver and how that might stand out. But yeah, I think in the world of Continuing ed, graduate programs, and online, there is such this sea of sameness. There's a lot of competing programs, and it's technically a national playing field in that it's online. You can take classes from anywhere. I don't really think, you know, you need to think about competing on a national level, and I think we can talk a little bit more about that later. But you at least, you know, the the competition has widened yeah. just because there's, there's no longer this uh, physical barriers keeping uh, people into like, uh, I want to be at a school where I can, you know, drive to in 10 minutes. Yeah. That's, you know, we can kind of broaden those horizons. But I think um, just having thrown that out there, I think, uh, and I, I'm trying to remember the percentage, but there's still, I think the majority of students that enroll in online programs are still within a 50 mile radius. Yeah. So I want to be careful in saying like national yeah. competition, because that's not really how how uh, schools should be thinking about that, but it's just to say like, you have to figure out how to really connect with students, prospective students as individuals and people and what they care about. That's what's important there. So you know what's so you know interesting is we talk about the CSA and let's talk about, you know, the, a lot of schools have a lot of value to deliver and a diverse portfolio. But I'd say the, the, the question we ask during our discovery that we 
usually get blank stares is what makes you unique. It's great. It's a simple question, but 90% of the schools we talk to have a really hard time answering that. And it's always different depending on who you talk to. Right. So I think even just putting the time into really understanding that as a department, as a program can be really value. Talk about the 1%. I think even aligning on that and getting everybody on the same page and kind of focusing on that um, in your communication with students can, can put you ahead can can kind of help you compete a, a little bit more effectively. Well, it's funny, you know, circling back to to, to the conversation around, you know, uh, adjunct faculty and bringing practitioners into the space. Like, you know, both of you sort of agreed that your faculty sort of are at least a primary aspect of of the core product, right? That you are offering, especially at the graduate level, especially online. And you know, it, it's it's funny because I think about like all the ads that I see for grad programs, for online programs, and like. The, the like I can't even tell you the last time I saw like a faculty member as as sort of like the face of an ad campaign right like yeah. come and study with Dr. So and so this is what they've done this is who they've worked with this is how their research their research has been applied in a very practical way like yeah. why don't we see more ads featuring the thought leaders themselves and, I, and maybe it's because like faculty are a little bit more reserved or I don't know they're, they're holed up in their offices which I'm sure some of it but there's got to be other faculty members, even even adjunct, right? That could be part of a marketing campaign. Like, why don't we see more of that? It's a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a stigma that, especially when it comes to like communications and yeah. marketing, everybody assumes faculty are difficult to work with. They don't want to help us, and like they just don't have a relationship there to do that, right? So that's where we do a lot of work is forging those relationships, and it usually just takes one faculty member that we that we work with on the digital PR side of our business where we get them featured in major media, they talk about their expertise and we're almost like their personal publicist, but they get a lot of value out of it selfishly, but then they become an advocate, right? And then this faculty member sees what they're doing and then all of a sudden you start getting everybody on board, right? So we have done some campaigns um, where we've used faculty that have worked really well. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, it kind of depends on the school. There, there are challenges there, but I think it's real. I think it makes a lot of sense because that is who the student's going to be interacting with. And so we'll use PR. We'll use like if we get them featured a major publication. So say we have a, you know, a persona that's focused on food deserts and, and for a social work program. And we have a faculty member that teaches their first course that was just in the Wall Street Journal talking about that topic. Right. So think about like from a nurturing perspective, being able to deliver that, and how powerful that is. And if and compare that to the experience of what other schools are delivering. Right. Like. That's really powerful, and students are going to be really connected to that. And speaking of that experience too, and nurturing, and and following up with, you know, more information about that faculty, maybe even the article that they were featured in. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we think the marketing arm or getting a student to raise their hand to say yes, I'm interested in this program. That that's where like the marketing and creativity stops. Or, um, and in that experience, that really is the beginning of an experience and how you can deliver something different and stand out, right? Like UVPs are very important, but the experience that you deliver is yeah. just as important, if not more important. And talk about sea of sameness. Like I go out when we're starting to work with a, with a school, university partner, client, whatever, and we'll fill out lead forms and just see like, what is this experience that I'll get, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's not and I don't mean to speak illy of, of universities but it's not often that I'm wowed by it and you know I guess that says something you know they're coming to us to work with us for a reason but um, you know think about that 
post lead experience and how you can deliver something truly different from what's out there. And one quick example of um, some of the things that we've helped uh, our partner institutions do is just think about the thank you page and reimagining that experience, right? Like you're filling out a form. First of all, there shouldn't be 20 fields on that form. That's a whole nother topic, but make that form easy. Makes, you know, someone should just be saying, yes, I'm interested. But then a lot of times you hit submit and then you just get a like, hey, thanks, we got your info, we'll be in touch. Like that is an opportunity to start engaging with that prospect prospective student right then and there. And it doesn't have to be, again, back to this idea of 1%, anything super amazing out of the gate. Um, but instead of a thank you page, you know, they're coming from your main website, usually or a landing page, and that's kind of for everyone, right? You know this person's interested in the institution. You probably even know the program. Could you serve them an experience right then and there to tell them more about that program, more about the faculty, success stories, give them um, information that they can start interacting with and start having an experience that's memorable right out of the gate. Um, you know, you need to layer on nurturing and fault communication on top of that as well. But we even see just in having that initial experience um, continue and letting them kind of interact with your content, that alone gets uh, prospective students to kind of buy in to, to the idea of, going to this institution, imagining that program. And, and that alone, we, can, we have seen tick up you know, application rates um, by as much as you know, five to 10% without even having the fault communication, like the results from that factored in. It's, it's amazing what just having a memorable experience. You talked about that one course that you took standing out in your mind. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's just opportunities again to just tick it up just a little bit from what you're doing now to deliver a better experience and then start layering on top of that. Well, it's like, well, it's like you work so hard to get, you know, if you nail down your UVPs and then yeah. if as you get them hooked and engaged, right, they're like, oh, this, this fits right in where I'm, you know, where I'm looking to go. It's going to help me accomplish my goals. And then they get into the enrollment process and boom, it falls it's comp all those things are completely gone. Yeah. Like think about yeah. that. And think about, and think about the experiences that, that a lot of these students are used to. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, it's some of that one per getting 1% better could just be removing those barriers to enroll, right? Like a clunky application process. Um, not only, you know, do I have to fill out an essay or there's a fee or there's all these things I have to submit, but also just like, does this, Perspective student understand that process. Have you made it clear of what all needs to happen? I think, again, just thinking about, you know, delivering an experience that, that wow, you know, one thing that we haven't really touched on yet that I think we talk about a lot, it's kind of a dirty word in higher ed, is to treat students like customers, consumers. Consumer. But, you know, um, I, I don't remember what episode it was, Zach, but I was listening to the podcast uh, where they were talking about buying car uh cars like carvana and like could yes, higher education yes. you know pivot and and but the fact that people are willing to buy cars like on a vending machine or online without having driven them just kind of speaks to how comfortable people are today making purchases online or without without human to human interaction i think it is important in higher ed to still have you know admit an admissions team that's following up and having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with with students but there's so much more that you can do um, digitally to help um, engage with prospective students and make it a personal connection um, and work with what you're doing. The, the cost to enroll students, you know, and, and thinking about enrollment rates declining and just, we have to be so cost effective today and we have to put our 
human efforts into where they're going to be most effective. And so thinking about how these things can really work together, I think is, is really important. Um, I don't even know where we started with that question. But no, no, no. <laughs> we that, can that, go off no, but this is, this is, really this, is, this is a really good, no, this is a really good transition <laughs> because I have a couple final questions for you, for you both. And, you know, one is just around, we, we've been talking about sort of this need to be a little bit more focused on what I would call sort of like product marketing, like product specific marketing, right? Like when we, whether that's leveraging individual faculty members, whether that's taking a more program specific approach to, to student recruitment, right? And especially at the graduate level, this is this is what works. Uh, grad, most grad schools don't care, you know, how big your student center is, or you know, how many people can fit into your football stadium. Like they care about the program. They care about how quickly can I get this done, and what is this going to do for me after, right? So, you know, when schools think about you know re relaunching a program, when schools think about sort of dusting off um, their their core products, augmenting them, spinning up new products, it's very difficult for schools to to do this well and and to do this quickly and to do this in a way that's relevant. You've touched on this a little bit earlier, Clayton, but like when you guys think about how higher ed might be able to accelerate course development time or you know, what things in, in that process, I know this isn't Archer's like a core area of expertise, but from just from your all's experience and, uh, you know, what you've heard from your partners, like any ideas or uh, insight into how we might reduce some of this friction so that, you know, the, the more progressive schools that are interested in spinning up programs that are a little bit more culturally relevant um, and, you know, might offer some neat alternative to something like a boot camp. Like, what comes to mind? What, if anything, might schools be able to, to start doing? Yeah, I mean, so I've, I've actually had a lot of recent conversations about this. And again, yeah, I'm, I'm no expert in this area. Um, but, you know, if you look at my opinion on it is it all boils down to the resources and support in place, right? And so when you when you look at, traditionally how a product is like traditional product management, right? And you look at the roles that are incorporated there and the, you know, how a product will evolve and what they're, they're learning and iterating on a product to better suit, create a better experience for a consumer and, you know, continue evolving a product. You just don't see a lot of that in higher ed, right? So it's like, you know, I think those that are doing it well are looking at it as a product and treating it as a such and putting the resources in place around it in order to, to, you know, ensure you can iterate and test and continue to build and grow and improve. Um, O'Donnell learns doing a really good job with that. They, they, they have like, they call it human centered design and they have a whole support system for faculty to build out, you know, um, kind of custom learning solutions based on what the faculty wants to build out. Right. Um, but I think the key there is they have the ongoing support for those faculty members working alongside them thinking, okay, what did we learn from the last cohort? You know, how did the last, you know, class, what did we learn? What did, what, what stuck, what didn't, what can we change? You know, how do we make this experience more engaging and, and enjoyable for the student? How do they retain more information? Right. So, um, you know, I think the public-private partnerships are going to be critical there, and I think a lot of universities are hesitant to give away some of that control. But I think there's ways that there are, you know, there are partners that can work alongside them and provide kind of the scaffolding for them to build upon and and those resources so they can, you know, test and iterate, move a lot quicker than they do now. I mean, I'm, you know, waiting for the day where like 
I don't know if you guys go to a, a gym where you like walk, if you do any like group classes or whatever, but like my wife and I are big into Orange Theory. And every time we like walk out of Orange Theory, mm-hmm. right? Like we get like a push notification to our phone that's like rate this class, right? Like what did you think about it, right? Or like or like Peloton, if you use the Peloton app, right? Like at the end, they're always like, how difficult was the class, you know, rate, rate this class. I'm waiting for the same thing to happen in higher ed where like you walk out of class and you get a push notification is like, hey, you know, what did you think about the material uh, that we talked about this week? Like, right. how, how are you feeling about the course overall? Two simple, quick questions where, you know, you rate your experience of the course. Because ultimately, like, that's the data that schools need to understand. Do we need to change anything about this course? Yep. Are students retaining information? Oftentimes, I feel like faculty in, in higher ed just gets a little defensive anytime someone's like, Hey, you're not, you know, you've got a lot of work to do to help ensure students are more ready for the workforce. And it's like, well, what do you mean? We're doing all these things. And it's like, I do think that sometimes people just don't know, like people don't know what sticks and what doesn't. And yep. higher ed are, they're, it's a huge bureaucratic, you know, a system and it's really difficult to source that information. So anyways, that, that's a tangent, but um, I, I look forward to the day where students are walking out of class and in real time getting the opportunity to deliver feedback on what I've just learned and how I feel like I'm doing in the course overall. Well, I think it's the challenge of academics kind of at the helm here because they think about it differently. They're not thinking about it as a product and they are the content within in the curriculum within that course is, you know, really close to a lot of folks that, you know, that's their, that's their, pro, that's yeah, them. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think it's shifting a little bit of that thinking for, on the faculty side to where they're more open on, on being open to that feedback and and how they can improve that experience. Yeah, I think that's a that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've heard and I I think I was reading about this and I can't remember where that you know there are some faculty members that literally like they want the program to be or the course to be what they want it to be and I think it is yeah. coming down to this mindset shift and again I think it's a dirty word but w- let's think about the the student experience and adding value for for the students that's what this is really all about at the heart of it is is a better student experience better outcomes so if we can start thinking with that mindset i think ideas like how do we get that instant feedback or how do we you know um put questions in front of students more often to see how they're doing um that it comes out of a mindset shift versus just like you know, what do I want out of this program as a faculty uh, and helping to design and deliver it, but really, again, just focusing on that student experience. I think that's a, it's a really hard question that you asked, Zach, because there isn't like a magic bullet or any one thing you can do, I think, to just quickly and easily make this happen. I think, um, Clayton, to your earlier point, I think a support system and the, it's it's like with anything, you have to resource it appropriately. Um, But I think to have institution buy-in it starts there and that really comes from that mindset shift of of thinking about the student experience first if there was one takeaway that you hope folks listening to today's chat will walk away with what would that takeaway be we'll start with you angie and then conclude with you clayton yeah i think (laughs) i think i'm going to sound like a broken record because i really think it is about reframing the questions that we're asking and i didn't even mean to do this in terms of how i kind of started off talking about problem solving and that's what creativity (laughs) is but it really like what is the problem that we're trying to solve i think instead of asking what you know what program should we be offering should we be doing boot camps like what modality is right i think we need to start by asking how can we better serve today's students i think if anything hopefully that was a takeaway of the conversation today
My, I would say embrace the uncertainty of where we're at right now. I think it's an inflection point. Again, I'm an optimist, but I see where, you know, from the, our public partners, our private partner, everybody's thinking, like, I see the evolution happening and I see, you know, again, there's so many talented, amazing people. And I think the next decade is going to be really exciting. Um, and I, again, I don't think traditional higher ed's going anywhere, despite what everybody tries to say there, it's not going anywhere. I think it's just going to improve and get better. And all of us are in higher ed for a reason, right? We, you know, we believe in what we're doing and we believe in the impact and the outcomes. And I think it's only going to strengthen that as, as, um, you know, we all work together to make the experience better for students, the outcomes better. And, and, um, yeah, so I'm, I think that's for me, that's probably my biggest takeaway. Just embrace the uncertainty. Well, folks, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. We could chat all day. Um, and for folks tuning in, there's lots more to come with this special series between Archer and Enrollify. Angie, Clayton, thank you for your time. Thank you.